Uh, we're going to go ahead and today, very quickly, start with the parashah Tetzaveh. And uh, this is an amazing, amazing parashah. The last couple parashahs together, folks, the Father is revealing something very prophetic. And I'm praying, and I pray. I've been praying a lot for the last several weeks. Uh, petitioning to our Heavenly Father and our King to give me insight and wisdom in these two parashahs specifically, and the one upcoming now as well. Because the Father has shown me that the last three Torah portions are connected, believe it or not, with the prophet Amos. Very interesting, isn't it? We ended up last week with the parasha of Teumah. Okay, and what was the, the, the parasha of Teumah? Teumah had to deal with what? Bringing in the offering, right? Bringing in to build something for the Lord. He said that you are to do this so that I may what? Dwell with you. Please understand what I'm trying to convey to each and one of you today. Because when we think about temple service, we don't understand it. Which is why we neglect it the most. This is the part that most people get bored. Now, I'm going to try to do my best not to bore you here today. I'm going to try. I might do backflips just to keep you awake. No, no. But the reality is that temple service is vital. And even the Hazal will even agree with this. It's vital in order for the restoration of Israel in the latter days. We all talk about prophecy, right? We all talk about what's going to happen in the future, but we're neglecting to see that all this has been laid out for us. I will submit to you today through the temple service. And I'll reveal more of that later. So, Terumah had to deal with, I'm going to, I want you to build an assembly. He said, not for me. Do you understand that a temple service, folks, indicated that the Heavenly Father was actually pleased with the people? Whenever there was no temple, guess what happened? They were in exile. The Galut, which means that he was not pleased with them. This is important, folks. Very, very important because we are very quick to attack temple service without not even understanding temple service. And what was the purpose? Why Abino Macheno gave us the instructions to build a temple service here on earth? Can I ask you a question? Why? According to Torah, Hashem told him, build a temple according to the measurements that I'm going to show you in the mountain. Okay, that means that Moshe saw with his own eyes a temple. He didn't just fabricate it. He saw. So, it stands true that Hashem says that the earth is his full stool. Right? Means that there's a heavenly tabernacle. Okay, if there's a heavenly tabernacle, why we need an early tabernacle? That's the question. Better yet, could Hashem not dwell with us if there's no earthly tabernacle? I'm not trying to be facetious, folks. I just want you to think. Think. Because a lot of times we speak. We don't know what we declare. That's the problem. Okay? Does it matter to God if we had an earthly tabernacle? Is what I'm trying to say. Does it matter for him? Well, the Uma says that he commanded Moses to do it. There was a reason for it. You want to know why, folks? I'm going to submit something to you today. What's bound in heaven is bound here on earth. Do you know, and I don't know if you know this, do you know that the things here on, on earth are supposed to be a reflection of Hashemayim? The things in heaven? 
Keep that in mind as we go through the teaching. The things here on earth do matter for Hashem because they're supposed to be a reflection of what's in heaven. So if we are commanded to bring the machut to this earth, his kingdom to this earth, then <clears throat> shouldn't we be a reflection of what's happening in the heavenlies? Food for thought, folks. I just really want you to understand this in a, in a very, very deeper, if you want to call it, a deeper layer of perspective so that we don't, again, sin against the Lord. One of the things that we're going to see in Tetzaveh, we just came out of Terumah, and the, the, uh, the, uh, again, the, the, the commandment is to build a tabernacle for me, he says, so that I may dwell among you. Okay? Now, we're going to continue. We ended last week with the construction of the Mizbeha. Okay? And what is the Mizbeha? It is the altar. Okay? The altar, folks, it is so vital. And coming in from the construction of the Mizbecha, this altar, now he's saying, by the way, he gave them the Torah in Mount Sinai, and now he's saying, now that I redeemed you, now that I set you free on Pesach, by the way, right? Now I'm going to bring you to the mountain. I'm going to give you my Torah, my heart, and now I want you to build me a sanctuary. You got to see how the Father's working. How organized our God is, folks. And how methodically he works. And we sometimes miss it. We're not seeing it. Now comes the sanctuary. This is where you all take place. Because the sanctuary was built from the inside out, by the way. Not the other way around. It was started where? Where did the sanctuary start? The building of the sanctuary started with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, and what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Torah. The tablets of the Torah was inside the Ark, folks. The Nevi'im prophesied about these things. That what's going to happen is that the tablets were to be in the Ark, which it is symbolic of our what? Our hearts. You got to see how the Father's working. Now that we're working in this, and he said, now that you're building this, now I want you to go to the second stage. And that is now I want you to build a Mizbecha. Now after you build a Mizbecha, I want to command you something. Because you see, we, the command that he's going to give in here, we cannot fulfill it unless we actually build the Mizbecha, that is the altar, and we have Torah in the ark. Let's see this, folks. I want to share something very interesting with you today. Am I boring you yet? No. Man, okay. Not doing my job. Okay, Exodus 27.20 says, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure. Let's stop right there. Because it opens up by saying, you shall command. Meaning, it's not an option. He's not saying, you know what, I think you should. Maybe. I don't know. Somewhere around there. He said, command them. What is that in Hebrew? It says, ve'atat et et Israel. What is the word in here for the title of our parasha? It is tetzaveh. And that is from the Hebrew word zav, which means to what? Command? It's, it's, in the, it's in a form of a mitzvot, if you want to call it. It's in a form of commandment, the mitzvot, to do, to command, to delegate while still retaining control, according to Rabbi Hirsch. Interesting enough. So he's saying that I'm commanding you to do what? That they bring you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn us. Now, keep in mind, folks, that this is talking about the literal uh, tabernacle that they are to build, 
But <laughs> this is also revealing you. You see, much of this, if you don't understand it, if you don't pick up the idioms in here, which, by the way, they all temple service idiom. If you don't know temple service, you're going to recklessly misinterpret the Tanakh. I'll submit that to you today. So he's saying in here, why I'm saying this today, because our focus today is going to be about the aura, the light. This is important if we want to interpre interpret Rav Shaul, Apostle Paul's letters. If you want to understand Yeshua's parable concerning the light, you have to understand this. Otherwise, you're going to make that light a false light. You see? Let's see this together, folks. So it says, they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, it says. So it says in Hebrew, Ve'yichu Elecha, it says. What is Ve'yichu? To take, right? Bring. It's literally like snatching. Ve'yichu Elecha, like it says in there, Shemen Zayit Zach, it says. You are to bring Shemen. What is Shemen? It's what we get the word Mashiach. It means the oil. But it says Shemen Zayit. What is Zayit? The olive, right? But not just the olive. He says, zach What is zach? Now that gets very interesting because the word zach carries the connotation of something transparent, something that is pure. Here's something, Rabbi Hirsch says that this word also translates as something that it is, uh, what do you call that, uh, someone that is morally right. Zach. So let me ask you something. How does an oil is morally right? An oil is not a person. Let's go beyond the scripture to understand what Abinu Mahinu shared in the, in, the, in the Tanakh. This oil that you have to bring is supposed to be morally right. It's supposed to be transparent. It's supposed to be clear, the oil. And it says in here, Zaid uh, Zach, now it says, Katit Lama'or. Katit Lama'or. To what? For, to, for the light, he says. But how do we produce the, la, uh, how do we produce Lama'or, right? How do we produce that? The only way we can do it is by going through Katit. What is Katit? It literally means to beat the life out of you. <laughs> True. Katit literally means to crush you completely. This is amazing because the essence of the shemen it has to come through being bruised, being beaten. Does that sound attractive so far? Because we want to be a or for Hashem, we want to be a light for Hashem. But many of us don't understand what it entails to be a light for Hashem. I'm very cautious when I say I want to be a light from here on out. Be careful what you pray for, folks. Half of us, half of us are praying in here things that we have no understanding what we're going to get into. And then we start going through stuff in life. We're like, Richard, what's happening? Well, what was your prayer? <laughs> right? Because we still have a lot of Christian understanding when it comes to our prayers, right? We think everything is just hunky-dory. Everything's going to be great, roses. Well, eventually it will. But, you know, we're missing the part that in order to bring that light to the world, we still have to go through this. So let's, let's see this together. It says, La Maor, and then it says, Le Ha'alot. Le Ha'alot Neha. 
Nata Tamit. It says in here that Le'alo. Now, this word in here is translated as to light, but interesting, Le'alot also has to carry the same root as the Ola offering, which is Ola. What is Ola? To something that ascends to the Lord. So, this olive oil that's being beaten, that has the oil has to be pure, transparent. It's one that's going to ascend. Lehalot, it says. Look, Lehalot, the ner. Ner is the lamp which connects to the light. The light, the ner, is going to what? Ascend to Hashem. For when? Tamit. This is all part of the Tamit offering. We'll talk about that when we get to Vayikra. But this is something that is continuing forever and ever. Let's see this, folks. Let's go to the Midrash Rabbah to see what Hazal shares concerning this. So you don't think that Richard's starting his own thing. Okay? Sounds good, Richard, but I think that's all in your mind. Let's see if the sages of Israel, who, by the way, have been doing this for thousands of years, let's see what they have to say. And the Midrash Rabbah says, just as with the olive, they say, while it is still on its tree, it is selected for extra ripening. And afterwards, the olive is brought down from the olive tree, and it is squeezed. And afterward, it is squeezed. It is brought up to the olive press. And the olives are placed in a mill and then ground. And afterwards, they are wrapped in ropes. You know, probably the problem that we don't understand this is because we've been removed from this. If we want olive oil, we go to the store and we buy it. We don't actually have to produce the olive oil. So we don't really connect with the messages that Hashem is trying to convey to us in His Word. Because we don't do this, none of this. Well, most of us don't in here anyways. So we, dis we again, we disconnect to the same thing with Yeshua's parable. We don't connect with Yeshua's parable because none of us in here herd animals for the most part. Not on a full-time basis anyways. So we don't make those connections, but this is important. So it says in here, and the stones are brought to press down on them. Interesting that they will have these big, big stones. They're actually more like a wheel. They, they will go around and they will press the olive. Kind of like stoning them, you can say. And only after all this, after they go through all this, they give forth the oil, it says. You have to do all this so that they can produce the, well, the shaman, the oil. So it's so now, this is what Hazal says and makes the connection. So is with the people of Israel, he says. What does he connect with the people of Israel? It says, when the Jewish people are enjoying good times, they soar to great heights, it says. True? Absolutely. They are left to, uh, to ripen on the tree, ripen on the tree, so, so to speak. However, when they sin, they repent only after troubles befall them. They must be cast down from the tree and, and subjected to trouble in order to bring out the oil of repentance, right? That ultimately brings the geulah, salvation, folks. This is amazing. This uh, oil connects even with the latter days of salvation because what they're going to do the turmoils that they're going to go through, okay, is going to produce that oil that is going to, essentially, is going to usher back the Mashiach. This is very much Jewish understanding. We don't wait for the world to get bad in order for the Mashiach to return. We do good in the world in order to usher the Mashiach back. 
See, this is completely different than the way we've been trained. We've always been waiting for the world to get bad, for Jesus to return. Or you're going to be waiting and growing old, very old. The world is not going to get more sinful, folks. It cannot possibly get more sinful. Sin is sin. The enemy doesn't get more sinful. It's us repenting and turning back to him is going to usher him back. What does that mean? That we need to be like the olive oil. The olive. We need to be squeezed to produce that ruach, that oil that's going to come out that will bring about salvation to the people. Do you know that in, in Jewish thought, you are to be a Mashiach to everybody? You're supposed to be a Mashiach. Not that you are the Messiah, but you have to be a Mashiach for somebody. A deliverer for somebody. Moshe was a Mashiach, so to speak. Joshua became a Mashiach, so to speak. King David was a Mashiach. Actually, it says it. He was the Mashiach. A type of Mashiach. Same way. Our job is to present this, and this is how we present it to the Besorah, the Gospel, by showing people truly who the God of Israel is, and we become that but in order to do that, folks, we are going to, what the Tanakh is sharing with us, we're going to go through turmoil. Not to scare you guys, but it's going to happen. If you're proclaiming to the God of Israel, I can almost bet my life, you're going to be persecuted. Whether verbally right now by your family, friends, whoever, or yet in a time to come where it's no longer going to be you who you wrong, I'm right now, I'm going to just go ahead and chop your head off. Simply put. The question is, are we ready for that? Are we ready to die for the sake of the Besorah? For the sake of the gospel of Yeshua? Are we ready? And by the way, when I talk about the gospel of salvation of Yeshua, I'm not talking about this through the Protestant way. I'm talking about this through the Torah. Because by the way, people die for thousands of years. Jewish people have died for the sake of the gospel. I will submit to you today. Because Moses, Moshe, preached the gospel. Abraham had the gospel according to Galut, Galatians, right? Full for thought. So let's move on in here. The prophetic revelation I put in here, folks. The tabernacle slash temple is a prophetic picture of us today so that we can understand us today. Not only that, because when we understand us today through the eyes of temple service, then we are able to fulfill our call more diligently. That's the whole purpose, okay? Inside the center stood the Holy of Holies, which stood in heart, uh, housed the Torah through the ark. Okay, they are wrong. The oil produced the fire, which gave life. I mean, sorry, gave light, right? The light is the deeds of the Torah of Hashem. This we have to understand it. Because what Moshe was asked to do and later the generation, they were not asked to be a light according to their understanding. Remember, the light is coming from where? It's coming from the Mishkan. <laughs> What's inside the Mishkan? The most, you know what, folks? If there's no Torah inside the Mishkan, there's no Shekinah glory, then guess what? It's just a tent. What made it so special? When you look at the construction, it's just goat's hair weaved together and all kinds of other particles, but it's just a tent. A glorified tent, may I ask? Or may I say, rather? Look. The light is the deeds of the Torah of Hashem. That's very important to understand. The term light became an idiom for temple service referring to Torah, folks. Now, you don't have to believe me, folks, because I always submit to everybody. You test everything that I'm telling you here today, right? Test everything that I'm saying, but I will bring you the proper witnesses. Because without the proper witnesses, folks, there's nothing. It has to be witnesses. 
Yeshua said he came on account of all the witnesses, the prophets, Moshe, all of them talked about him. So, the Torah being, as far as the Torah being a light, let's see some examples of this. Look, Yeshayahu 8.20, Isaiah 20 says, To the law and to the testimony. How many of us believe Isaiah as a good prophet? Right? We, we talk about him all the time. He prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, all these kind of good stuff. But what we fail to realize is that we're not seeing also what else he's speaking. We can't cherry pick what we want to believe from Isaiah. We have to believe everything he says. It says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no what? Or, why is, you see, Isaiah is speaking here in temple service. See, now that we're getting a little bit of understanding of temple service, now we read that, and that makes more sense. Because the light had to come from the crushed olives, right? They would produce the light, which was inside the Mishkan, which is where housed the Torah. By the way, the Torah, we will cover more of that in a minute. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But look, there's no light in them. This terminology, again, is saying that if they don't have Torah, what kind of light they're producing? You could not have. What was the other things? <clears throat> the Torah, the ark was built. And now he's saying, after the Mizbecha is built, now he's saying, now here's where you're going to start planning in the building of this tabernacle. Now he's saying, command you now to bring all these instruments and all these things so they can produce, or so I can bring light. The Torah is a light to the world, folks. That's temple service language. See why it's important to understand temple service? Because otherwise, if I read this right now, no light in them, I can take that and twist it and turn it to say, well, you know, I go feed the hungry people all the time. Not that these things are bad. I'm not, not neglecting them. I'm just saying, you got to get to the essence of it. It's still obedience to the Torah. And you don't have obedience to the Torah, you're going to feed the world and the whales, by the way, in vanity. I hate to say that, but it is. I mean, they're going to they're gonna benefit great from it, but in reality is, how is that any different from an atheist doing it? <clears throat> Listen, I know best atheists that are the best people. They won't even kill a cockroach. Okay? If you want to get technical about these, don't come to me about these. Because there's people out there that really don't even believe in God, and they're doing some amazing things for humanity. That is not the standard. That's the problem that we have in today. We're misled by what we see because we don't understand temple service. He wants obedience to his Torah, and that automatically, obedience to the Torah automatically will produce these deeds to go and feed hungry people, to go and save the whales and do all these beautiful things for the world for the world it's going to produce it but you have to have the essence of torah you see that's why it says to the law and to the prophet they don't come to this there's no light in it now in light of what we're reading in here isaiah 8 20 how is that matching up with today think about it how many people are professing jesus but they're not bringing the law and they're not bringing the testimony what does the prophet say i'm not saying that you see i love this because you don't have to stone me you can go and stone Isaiah for this. He said it boldly. If they don't come to you with Torah, if they don't come to you with the testimony, forget it. There's no light in them. But we've been commanded to be a what? A light into the world. Wow. Interesting, isn't it? Let's continue here. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the command is a what? A nail. 
The command is in there. That's what we've been talking. See, this is all temple language. A lamp is the nana. That's what we're talking about, the menorah. Okay, the command is in there. And the Torah is a what? An or. It's a light. The Torah is the light, folks. But we've been commanded to be a light into the world. How can we be a light to the world? If we are the living tabernacle of Hashem, if we are an extension of His tabernacle, one of the things that we read about the tabernacle is that it has to have the Torah inside of it. So if we don't have the Torah inside of us, how can we be a proper light to the world? Makes sense. You see where I'm going with this, or rather where the scripture is going with this. So the command is a lamp and a Torah light and reproof of discipline, a way of life. The problem with this part right here, folks, is that we don't like to be disciplined. You know what's lacking today in the, in the body? Discipleship. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Discipleship. Because the prophet Amos says that in the latter days, rebuilt the tabernacle of David that has fallen. God, we put this together so you can understand it. The tabernacle of David is falling. We have to understand the function within the tabernacle so that we can properly come in agreement with our creator and build that tabernacle up again. It is important, folks. We're not doing it right now. The tabernacle is still laying waste on the floor. Haven't any of you ever built a tent? You ever put up a tent? A big tent? Like a big canvas tent? Those things are heavy, man. Those military tents, let me tell you. Pick them up, you like. Imagine a group of people inside a tent. You know, you go under and you're trying to put the poles up and get it all going. Imagine all this group of people under a big, big tent. And all we're doing inside is we argue. Like little roaches inside, mouses. And this piece of fabric that's very heavy is on top of them. I've actually seen that. It's kind of funny. It's hilarious to see people on there. You know, you're trying to do this, and all you see is movement and the fabric moving, but it's not going up. Why is it not going up? Because none of us are taking our post. We're going to see how through the Mishkan, how the Father is revealing restoration for all Israel. Let me continue in here. So the Torah is a light. It starts with that. Psalms 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my what? To my feet. Again, what is the terminology used here? Ner. That's the tabernacle. That's the lamp that lit, that lit the area outside of the Holy of Holies. Why is it saying that your word is a ner? Because it's connecting it back to temple service, folks. But because we don't like to read about the temple because we don't have one today. It's not important, Richard. We miss out on this. You see? We miss out on biblical interpretation, folks. The word is a ner to my feet and a or go back, light to my path, folks. Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you and what? Righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people to what? A light for the nations, the goyims. See, here's the problem. We cannot be right now a light to the goyims because right now we are completely disorderly. Nobody wants this. I got to level with you. Most people come in here and they run. 
not here, into this faith overall. Because there's no order. One of the first things that we see with the tabernacle, folks, and I will submit this to you, folks, Hashem is a God of order. Whenever this disorder, that is the work of the enemy. I, I bet my life on it right now. Disorderly does not belong with Hashem. Orderly belongs with Hashem. And that's what the first thing that we encounter with the building of the Mishkan is they got to be order, folks. Look. Isaiah 51.4. Give attention to me, my people, it says. Give attention. Hear what I have to say. And give ear to me, he says. In Hebrew. Give ear to me. My nation, for a law will go out from me. It says a law will go out from me. I will submit to you that that's a prophetic picture of the Mashiach, by the way. But I'm not going to get into that today. A law will go out from me, and I will set my justice, Mishpat, for a light to the people. By the way, when we're talking about the, the Chukim and the Mishpatins, all that entails order. See, when there's, no, when there's no order, there is no mishpat. There is no chukim. There's no statutes. There is no commandment. There's no laws. There's nothing. Can I ask you all something real quick? I'm going to pause for one second here. I, when I started this teaching, I said that today's teaching is going to connect to Amos. Because the prophet Amos says that in the last days, I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. Okay? There's a connection with the tent of David because it's talking about the ohel or the Mishkan in this case, that he's going to be rebuilding in the latter days. That's an important aspect of the, of the building of the Ohel, okay? If Hashem's goals, think about this, sometimes we just have to think a little bit, that's all. Not much, a little bit. If the goal of the Creator, my King, is to rebuild the fallen Mishkan of David, the fallen tent of David, it stands true that the opposite is true of what the enemy wants to do. True. So if Hashem wants to build the fallen tent of David, Hasatan, cursed be his name, what does he want to do? Tear the temple. Well, not tear it down. It's already down. Keep it down. Keep that in mind as we go through the teaching. Because that's his job. He wants the Mishkan to stay down. He doesn't want it up. Pause for a minute. Because if it's down right now, right? Then what's happening in the body right now to equal the tabernacle being down? What is the body doing today that the tabernacle of David is falling still? There's no chaos. Thank you. There's chaos. There's no order. I will submit to you today, folks, we reliving the book of Judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because there was no king in Israel. Where there's no authority, anybody can do whatever they desire to do and say, you know what, God did it. Because there's no accountability. Think about this, folks. I really want you to think about this. I pray that the Lord really ministers to you. Because as for me and my house, I want to contribute towards the building of the Mishkan of Hadarit. I want it, put it up. I bury my desires. I bury my thoughts. I bury my glory. Everything, I flush it down the toilet for the sake of the kingdom. And that is something that we all need to do if we want this to work. 
Simply put. More on that in a minute, in, uh, later on. Let's continue on in here. So the prophecy of the lamps in connection with Yeshua's teaching, folks. We're going to connect still with the lamps because this is important. Before we even get to that, we need to understand light and we need to understand how to be a light. Look, Yeshua's teaching in connection with this, this is very interesting. Exodus 25, 37, 7, you shall make seven lamps for it, right? And the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it, it says. Very poor translation, by the way. I don't even understand what they said there, to tell you the truth. Honestly. See, that's what happens. We read. I don't understand it. We move on. We do that with 90% of the Bible. We read. I don't get it. Move on. But there's an important part of information in here that we need to understand what it's saying because it gives a revelation of the Mashiach and his teachings. Look, you shall make seven lamps for it. In Hebrew, what does it say in Hebrew? It says, Ve'asiti, I'm sorry, Ve'asita, et neroteya. Neroteya. So it's saying that you have to build the seven lamps, right? Okay. And here is Shiba, which is seven, okay? But look what it says in here. Then it says, Ve'he'ela, et neotea, ve'he'il, ad ever tanaya. Interesting about this, folks, <laughs> it totally blows my mind, that in here, after it says that you have to build the seven lines, it says, Ve'he'ela, et neotea, ve'yor. Okay, so it's saying in here the word vela, which is translated in the, and it should give light. But again, this word translates also as ascending, something that's burning, like the all our offering. It's the same root for all our offering in, in Bayukra. So it's something that's ascending appropriately. What is ascending? It says, et neotea I'm sorry, vehe'il al ever. So it's saying essentially, that these lamps that are they're supposed to uh, ascend the light, they're actually, it says, ever faneha. You know that that word, ever, is from the same Hebrew word of Hebrew, ever, okay? <laughs> Interesting that it says that the, the wicks essentially are all are to face the east because ever also carries the connotation of east as well. Crossing over. That's where we got the terminology Hebrew. So what does this look like? It's saying that all these lamps that are bringing light, there are seven lamps that are bringing the light, they all need to be facing a verfaneha. They ought to be facing to the east, the face of the east, essentially. So I took a picture from the Klein Mishkan, a copy of this that I thought was amazing. They, they literally, in the temple service, and when the, uh, on the restoration now of the temple service, they have actually a picture of what this would have looked like. It's going to blow your mind. And it actually comes in agreement with the Hebrew. Look. If you notice in there, the wicks are facing the Shemin. All the wicks were facing to the middle, the Shemin, which is known as the servant. In other words, the understanding for this is that their light that they have comes from this light. As a matter of fact, the shaman is the one that lights all the men on. True. But how they bowing down towards the middle one is what's interesting. Look what it says in here. 
at, at the top of each branch, the center stem was a bowl or a lamp. Every evening, each lamp was filled with half lock, approximately 10 ounces or 300 millimeter, of pure olive oil. And a wick was inserted. The lamps shaped so that the wick in each of the side lamps will face the center flame, essentially. That's what we see there in the picture. Yeshua taught this principle to his Talmudim, to his disciples. Those wicks bowing down to the shaman is something that he spoke in a parable. But if we don't understand this, we're going to miss it. We're not going to make the connection. Look, let me share with this with you. Matthew 5.14 says this. You are the light of the world, he says. Wow, that is so awesome. We're the light of the world. I have no idea what that means, but it sure sounds good, doesn't it? You are the light of the world goes back to tabernacle service. You have to have Torah. So look what it says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, it says. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light into all the house, right? Now in 16 is where it comes in agreement where we just saw the picture. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? To your father. Why? Because the wicks are giving glory to the shaman, which is the servant. The light that they're producing, it is the light of the menorah, the, the center servant light. He is using this parable to allude to the actual wicks bowing down to the shaman. Very, very, very interesting. But if we read this, which I'm assuming we all have read this while we were growing up, we have no idea what he's talking about being like, other than just be a good person. Well, the Buddha was a great person. I mean, and there's a lot of good persons out there, folks. A lot of great people. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the light of the menorah, which is where the Torah stood. By the way, Yeshua taught in parables. You know that that was a Jewish custom among the rabbis in the first century? He's not the only one. Even to today, you go to a shul or yeshiva, they teach in parables. Very, very common, folks. Very common. So who was the light for, essentially? Look, Exodus 27, 21 says, In the tent of meeting, outside the veil, <laughs> the menorah didn't stand inside the Holy of Holies. It was outside. It says, Outside the veil is before the testimony. What is the testimony? The ad? The witness? The Torah? Look. Aaron and his son shall tend it, it says, from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statue forever to be observed throughout the generations by the people of Israel. That commandment, he didn't say that you are to do it until the Mashiach comes back. He said this is something that you're supposed to do forever. That, you, that light's supposed to be essentially shining forever. Look, in Exodus Rabbah, says this. Not that I need you to provide light for me. This is what the sages of Israel say. The Holy One, blessed be he, says, not that I need you to light anything for me. Okay? But in order that you may provide light for me as I provide light for you. This is in order to elevate you above all the other people. The purpose of the lamp was so that you can be elevated, by the way. He doesn't need it. He is the light. He's the one that gives light to everybody. That they may say, Israel gives light into him who illuminates the whole world, they say. Look, in Midrash Nahumah, 
Que mientras están con más es this. If, if you light lamps for me, I will illuminate you with the great light of the future. This is talking about the final Geulah, the return of the Mashiach. Isaiah 60, 60:19 says, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness will the, uh, the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. This is amazing, folks, when we connect all this, because you see in the book of Hazon, later on, after the uh, final, the millennium reign, it says that the new Yerushalayim will come down from the Shamayins, right? And what's going to happen? It says that it's going to be so glorious, but that there's not going to be no temple. And there's going to be no need for light, right? Because it says that the Lord himself will give light. Do you understand that that is the final goal right there? To go back to the Garden of Ed, Eden? Where there was that relationship so intimate with the Lord that there's no need literally for a building anymore? Because we will have literally incorruptible bodies. And we can stand before a perfect holy God and not be consumed. But you know, get there, folks, we still have to follow the parameters that he's given us through his word. We can't deviate from that. Luke 2.29 says, Lord, now that you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This is in the temple. This is the birth of Yeshua. And he says in here that you prepare in the presence of all the people a light for revelation to the who? To the goyim. And for glory to your people Israel. Again, going back to the light. And where were they? They were here in the temple. They were bringing in the other. They were bringing Yeshua to be dedicated. So how do we overcome the attacks of the enemy? Folks, it's a good one. Since we are discussing the or. Today in temple service, how do we, how? Is there any connection for uh, overcoming the attacks of the enemy? Absolutely. Look, John 1, 4-5 says this. In him was what? Life. And the life was the what? Light of man. Here we go again, that terminology. The light shines in the what? Darkness. But guess what? It says the darkness has not overcome it. You want to know why? Because that light that shines in the darkness, the sages say that this is the light before creation of time. Because that says that that light is actually the Messiah himself. This is the light from Genesis chapter 1, and, uh, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Where he says, let there be or light. But they're saying in here, or rather John is saying that the light shines in the darkness. Do you understand, folks, that if you carry the light of Hashem in you, you have nothing to fear? I don't care how many spells they throw upon you. Let me tell you something, folks. I come from a very, very, very wicked background. Not me, but the culture that I grew up with was very, very wicked. We used to have Santerias, Santeros all around us. I don't know if you know what that is, but that is, that is Caribbean witchcraft right there. Okay? And they threw spells at us all, this, all the time. You know, we were walking in, in Torah back then, and none of it affected us. How much more now that the Torah resides within us, folks? Because the light runs from, the, the darkness runs from the light. Understand that. This is why Balaam was not able to curse Israel. Even though he tried, he couldn't. Because what the Lord has blessed, no one can curse. Understand that if you kept anything out of our teaching today, if anything that I've spoken, walk out with that. What the Lord has blessed. Let me put it to you this way. That, that statement is true. It is so true that Balaam had to think outside of the box. And he said, I can curse him. 
you can curse them, but there's another way that we truly can get them to curse. We can get them to curse themselves. See? That's, the, that's it right there. We curse ourselves. We don't have to worry about failing a spell. You know what? <laughs> I laugh at your face at the end of the day. Because it is my obedience and the light that resides within me that's going to overcome that darkness. The only way I'm going to fall for that trap is if I fall into your idolatry. That's the only way, folks. That is scriptural. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by what? Evil. Well, there's a whole lot of that today. There's a whole lot of that. People are being overcome by evil. But what does it say? But overcome evil with what? Tough. Good. What is good? Well, I'm not even going to get into that today. We're only running out, of, running out of time. What is good? The Torah is good. His word is good. We overcome evil with doing good. Ephesians 5, 8. Or at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of what? Light. You see, this is all temple language. Walk as children of light. It's not, a, it's not poetry, folks. It's temple language. It's talking about the or, the light that resided inside the Mishkan. Amen? So we're going to conclude with this today. Now that we understand the, the aspect of what Hashem is doing and where he's, where he's gearing, he redeemed his people Israel. He took him to the mountain. He gave him the Torah. Now he's asking them and showing them a, a, a site and a plan of the Mishkan so that they can be what? They can have the Lord dwell in the midst of them. By the way, that was meant to be inside of you. It was always that way, folks. It's always been the plan. I want to dwell inside of you, in the midst of you, in your heart. That's the prophet Jeremiah says. I will put my word, his Torah, in your heart. Dan goes back all to temple service. So look at this. We're going to conclude with this now. And there's a lot more in this parasha, but today, for the lack of, for the sake of time, I want to cover this. What the Lord led me to is the consecration of the peace, the priest, I'm sorry, and the restoration of holy order. Because what's happening? The nation of Israel came out of what? What did they come out of? Idolatry. They came out of Egypt, right? They were there for some 200-something years, according to the sages in, in, in Egypt. And, well, they picked up a lot of things. And, you know, in order to really fully understand this, you have to understand the religion of the Egyptians at that time. To understand the, uh, the, the whole religious arena at that time. You know, the climate of that time. What was taking place. The political aspect of that time as well. What was taking place in Egypt. The political system. The religious system. Was it intertwined together? How did that, how did that affect Israel? Since they had to be under subjection of Egypt. But back then, government and religion was not separate. It was together. Today, religion and government is separate. But back then, it was very much entwined together. Your government was your religion, essentially. This is the things that we have to understand about Egypt so that we can fully appreciate and understand the mentality of, Egypt, of Israel at that time so we can see what the Father is talking about. Amen? So the restoration of holy order, folks, it's an important factor because the prophet Amos says that in the latter days, I'm going to rebuild the Mishkan of the fallen Mishkan of David, the fallen tabernacle of David. Look, Exodus 21, 29.1 says, Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them that they may what? Serve me as priests, right? And in Hebrew it says, asher lachem, to them, le so in here saying the Kohen. Now this is the word that we always read about the Kohens, the, the Levites, the priests, and whatnot. 
But let me share something to you about this word in the Kohen, because he's saying this is what I'm doing to them, and there's a particular reason why he's doing this to them, he says. Now, I'm going to submit something to you. At this point in time, they knew Hashem. They knew him. He had just revealed himself in Mount Sinai. And I'm going to share something even more that you may may not know. The essence of Yeshua was already there. This, I'm going to even go further. The understanding of Yeshua was there. That's why the Psalms is always talking about your salvation. Your salvation. And a personal pronoun, meaning it's an entity. It's him. Your salvation. It's not something that is vague, but it's very, very concrete. So, Lakahan Li, it says from the Hebrew word Kahan, which means to mediate in religious services, essentially. Okay, so he's saying that this is what I'm going to do. Now, keep in mind, let's backtrack in here. What are they doing? They're building the what? The Mishkan. Where? In the wilderness. Why? Why they're building the Mishkan in the wilderness? Because they now have a 40 year journey from where they were at to the promised land. And they needed order in their lives. Because the God that we serve is a God of order. I stand on that, folks. Simply put, look, let me share something with you. Exodus 29, And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statue forever, says. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now we know that this is part of Leviticus 8, 1 and 4. How did they ordain Aaron and his sons? By the way, this is important. This is very important today because we have a plague today out here. Let me go ahead and Google rabbi and print my certificate. That's it. Let me tell you something, folks. Read the book of Judges. Oh, actually, we read it this morning in prayer. That's exactly with, uh, with, uh, with the house of uh, Malachi Yehu did. And he appointed his own sons as priests, which was completely out of order. And immediately after that, what does it say? At that time, there was no king in Israel, so everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Was there a tabernacle standing at that point? No. Look. So it says... The Lord spoke to, uh, to, the, to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread. And assemble who? All the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay, what happened there was an ordination process. There was according to the Torah. Why all the congregation of Israel? Why did they have to be there? Because witnesses. Now, it stands and it begs the question, why did Hashem do that? What's the point of that? Can I, can I ask you a question? Did they see God in Mount Sinai? All of them saw it. Every single one of them saw Hashem, or they heard Hashem, rather. They didn't see Him, they heard Hashem in Mount Sinai. What was the need of this then? As a matter of fact, we read later, in the, in the, later we're going to read in the book of Balimar, that Korah rose up saying, everybody in here is holy. Every single one of us. And we all hear from the Lord. We have to be careful for it because there's a major spirit of Korah out there today. And what is the major spirit of Korah? What is the purpose? Remember, let's go back to, again, let's keep back. 
What is the purpose of the spirit Korah? To prevent the perfect and holy order of Hashem to continue. And if the perfect order of Hashem does not continue, the Mishkan, the tabernacle of David, will remain on the ground. This is what's happening in the Hebrew roots and in the Messianic movement today. You ever heard of the term, too many chiefs, not enough Indians? What do you, what do you think that came from? This all comes from the back of the Bible, folks. Too many chiefs, not enough Indians, not no order. Where there's no order, Hasatan dwells, folks. I'm going to be as bold to even say that. Where there's no order, the enemy. Remember, what does Babylon mean, by the way? What does the term Babylon mean? Anybody know? Confusion. Where there's no order, there's Babylon. And guess who dwells there now? It's certainly not my king. Hasatan dwells there. Because that's where he thrives. That's where his power comes. Where there's confusion. Where there's disorder. Where there's no accountability. That's where he dwells. Again, if you take anything out of this teaching today, take that part too also. Amen. So look, he says, bring the entire congregation so that they can what? They can be ordained before witnesses. You know that when Absalom rose up against his father? How is it that they were able to distinguish at that point? They didn't know. Is Absalom the anointed one? Or is Solomon the anointed one? This, 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 you know, I mean, I'm sorry, David. Because they knew. Because why? The ordination process, folks. The witnesses. It's always about witnessing. Look. Kershuma says this. Look. The offerings represents the service in two aspects, he says. Okay? The service as service of God, as an office in which the Kohen serves, is represented by the bull. Okay? That's why it says para. For the Kohen bears the yoke, plowing and sowing in God's field, in God's acre. In Judaism, he says, however, God's acre is not the graveyard, as in the common expression, but the field of life. As the prophet says, I am not a prophet, I am a worker of human world. For he, gives, uh, for he has given me the, to humanity from my youth. Zechariah 13.5. The second function, her says, is this. The Kohen leads, now this is the problem that we have in today, folks. Because the coin is supposed to lead and guide the community. Now, I'm going to submit something to you. Many of you are saying, yeah, but I was back in temple service. We don't have a temple today. Okay, back even when there was a temple, folks, there were synagogues. The synagogues were known as an extension of the temple. And the order established in there was seen as good by Hashem. So it says that the Kohen, part of the job of the Kohen, is to lead and guide the community. What is the antidote for that? What is it that the enemy wants against that? To have no leaders, to have no accountability. Because if there's no leadership and there's no accountability, what do we have? An anarchy. Trust me, I'm very familiar with anarchy. The country that I come from. So that's the whole thing. If where there's no order, where there's no leadership, everybody can do whatever they want. What is, what is the purpose of the Kohen? Again, even back then, the Kohen was a representation of the rabbis back then. They were an extension of that. They lead and they guide the community. Thus, the service grants him privilege and honor. This aspect is represented by a ram. I.e. For the Kohen is the ram, endowed with power and influence, who strives before God's flock, essentially. So look, restoration of holy order. Amos 9.11 says, In that day I will what? Raise up the booth. 
of David that has fallen and repairs breaches and raised up its ruins and rebuilt is at the days of old. Now I'm going to share this with you. Look, Jeremiah 23, 4. You know how the sages make their interpretations? It's called themes. I learned this when I went to Yeshiva. Themes. They take themes and words from passages and compare them to see if there's an evidence to that. In the same way, what do you see between Jeremiah 23.4 and Amos 9? Do you see a resemblance in the opening of that? What does it say? In Amos, he's saying that he's going to raise up the tabernacle of David in those days. In Jeremiah 23.4, it says, I will raise up who? Shepherds. How does the tabernacle of David come to flourish it and be erected? It starts with leadership, folks. Because let me tell you something. If you're going to go under a tent to try to build it, here's what's happening. When you got a tent, and I'm an experienced person in tent. I lived from there for years. You know, you got, let's say, a 20 by 24, big old canvas, like I said, heavy as it can be. And you get, you have to get underneath. That's the problem. You have to get underneath the tent. And if it's summer, you're going to choke to death because it's so hot. You have to get the poles from underneath to get them up. But the problem is that those poles are, I mean, that is heavy. I had a 23-ounce canvas. This thing is heavy. You need a group of people to erect that tent. Now, everybody, because again, my experience in, in raising these things, you have to have everybody in each corner. You got one, two, three, four, five, six. Everybody has to be in a corner to bring it up. And once you got it up, now you have to secure and you have to do all these manures to make it tight so it can stay. What happens if we are in our corners, right? And we're about to raise the tabernacle. But you see, I see here Mr. Ted. He's not doing it right. So I'm going to abandon my post now and try to go and do his job. What's going to happen? That's going to go down. Now, in the same sense, if Wade is over there in that corner and he's supposed to be in his post, what's going to happen now? Wade's seeing me helping Ted, but now Wade spots this guy over here and he's not doing it very well. So now Wade's going to abandon his post and he's going to go and try to get it right. What's going to happen with that corner there? Whoop, down. You see what's happening right now, folks? We're not standing in our post. You know why we're not standing in our post? Because there's no direction. There's no guidance. Look. I will raise up how many? Shepherds. By the way, that's in, how many? That's in plural. That's not talking about Yeshua. Because Yeshua is known as the what? Chief. No, not just the shepherd. The chief shepherd. But he has shepherds, plural. I will raise up shepherds over them who will what? Care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Is that happening today? Absolutely not. We still fear and we're being dismayed. Why? Because we're not trusting in Hashem. Because we are in our corner, and we're saying, well, I don't know. This doesn't look right. I'm going to abandon it. Okay. Well, what's going to happen with that corner right there? How many of you actually know a little bit of temple service here? What happened in the temple service? Each area had an assignment, folks, for the Levites to be in. What would happen if the Levites abandoned their posts during service? They would die. No, no, no. It's not a spanking. They would die, simply put. That's the importance of temple service and order within the body, folks. Please, I hope that you, I pray that you receive this message because it's vital, it's important. If we want the fallen tape of David to be erected, folks, we have to pay, take our positions 
and we need to understand even that. With that said, that needs to be understood. We're gonna, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but we got to see and understand that that is the God of Israel. Order, number one. Look, restoration of holy, uh, holy order starts with appointed leadership, number one. History has proved that if you have no leadership, you're going nowhere. That history even proves that. Equipping, another thing in here, restoration of holy order starts with equipping and training the body to fulfill their roles in the kingdom. Because if you don't have people training for their calling and nurturing the gifts, what's going to happen? Zeal without discernment is just as destructive, folks, as not walking in Torah. You know how many things people have done in the name of God throughout history? Through zeal? They did it on the name of God. Who are we to speak? We can't we can be partial in our judgment, folks. Yeshua said that you are not to be partial in your judgment. Your mishpat, that's why we cover mishpatim, your mishpat needs to be in righteousness. Simply put, we cannot sit here and look at now these rebels who are going around in the name of religion and slaughtering people and say that they're doing it wrong. Well, they're saying that they're listening to God. But you know what the difference is? They have no accountability. Most rebels, you're going to know there's zero accountability, period. This is the issue that we have to address, folks. Not to disqualify, listen to what I'm saying in here. It's for the equipping, for the training. There has to be equipping, there has to be training. Let me put it, give you an example. When I, before I became a pastor, I wanted to go to Africa. I don't have any way, but I wanted to go to Africa. And I told my pastor, I'm going to Africa. I want to go over there, I want to go serve in Africa. He literally had a smile on his face. I'm like, what's the problem? So that's not a problem. You know, you want to go to Africa, that's good, but I'm telling you right now, you're a pastor. I said, okay. Folks, the idea is this. My thoughts and my my zealousness for wanting to do to go to Africa is not the plans of the Lord. And that's why we need accountability. I know people who are embarked, who have embarked. I've been in this walk for a while. I didn't just roll out of Christianity last year and started doing this, folks. I've been doing this for 20 years now. And I have seen a lot in 20 years. People embarking in things that God did not ordain you to do. And if he did, if he did, even with that said, because we've seen, we've seen that also, we've seen where it is, God is doing it, but they're neglecting the holy order. They're going ahead of the Lord. They're not being trained. Let me train folks. For everything you're training. I'm going to prove that through the Bible, simply put. It's not my thought. It's not my idea. It's scriptural. The Levites had to be what? Trained. Every single one of them had to go through training in order to operate in their position within the tabernacle and within the kingdom. The problem today is that we don't want training. And a lot of this stems from self-prophecy, unfortunately. I'm not neglecting prophecy. I believe in prophecy, folks. Without it, we are, we are nothing. I'm just saying that we have to restore order. The idea is for everybody to work together for the equipping and the training so that everybody can fulfill their call. I praise the Lord, I praise Hashem, that he put a shepherd over me that was able to prepare me to do my job right now. I promise you folks, and tell, mark my words, I promise you, I would have quit four years ago if it wasn't because of that. There was no way I would have been able to last this long because none of you have an idea 
of what I have had to put up in the last four years in this mountain. I would have not been able to do it. Through training, through my shepherd, through calling him and saying, crying out to him and, and giving me advice, I was able to fulfill my call. You know why? Because I did a five-year training with him. Five years, folks. You know that. Five years to train me to come up here. And you know what, folks? Half of the stuff that I train with, he couldn't possibly help me because look where I'm at. <laughs> but it prepared me for the body. That it did. It prepared me because I came from a congregation that there was about 100, 120 people. Talk about dealing with problems on a weekly basis. I sat at his right hand. I was that Joshua who sat with him to hear and to learn. That's what it takes, folks. It's not, it's not suppressing the spirit. It's not saying that, you know, you guys can't do it. No. It's we need to work in holy order. Simply put. And the first thing that the tabernacle teaches that the part of the priesthood was to train and to equip, to guide the community. There's got to be a guidance. There has to be guidance, folks. Ezekiel 44, 23 says, They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common. Before you go out there and conquer the world, you need to be trained. Do you know the difference between the holy and the common in a spiritual sense? And show them how to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. Part of the problem is that we don't know how to distinguish spiritually what's clean and what is unclean. Because it looks good. Satan comes as an angel of light, scripture says. So if you're in the spirit and you haven't been trained for that position, he's going to chew you up and spit you out and laugh. Because you are ill-equipped. You have a calling. I'm not neglecting the calling. The, the Levites had a calling. But they still had to fulfill their training, folks. In dispute, they shall what? Act as what? Judges, mishpat. And they shall uh, judge it according to my judgment, it says. They shall keep my laws and my statute and all my appointed feasts. And they shall keep my holy Sabbaths holy. Now, I'm going to share this with you. We're going to conclude with this, folks. This is now where I'm going to bring it to you how Yeshua advocated what we're reading today as far as holy order. We're going to see this. Now, how many of us have read Matthew 9.36? Let's read it together if you never read it. Well, don't read it out loud. Just follow me. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Who, who, who's watching the crowds here? Yeshua. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why did he have compassion for them? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without what? That gives you an insight to the religious climate of that time and what was taking place, folks. Because of the corruption in the priesthood, nobody trusted nobody. Everybody was their own dog or their own watchman, basically. Yeshua walked into that. That's why he said that when he saw them, he had compassion because they were with sheep without shepherd. Look. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest send out laborers into his harvest. Now, for years, folks, I have read this. And through the Protestant understanding, it's always been that there's not enough people out in the field working. That's, you know, as it, as it shows in the English. The harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. In other words, there's more needs, but there's not enough workers. But can I present something to you a little bit different today? 
I just want to show you something a little bit different than the common interpretation that Christianity has given us. Because I'm going to present this scripture through the eyes of Torah now. Let's look at this now. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That word for few is in the Greek word oligos. You know what that means? Puny, extend, degree, number, duration, and or value as well. Okay? Now, in the 1828's Webster, that word for puny, which tra tracks back to the Septuagint, to the Old Hebrew, literally means a young and experienced person, a novice, an inferior, petty, uh, of an underrate, small and feeble. This word generally includes the signification of both smallness and feebles. What that really is saying in there, and we read through also through the, through the, uh, the commentaries of even uh, the uh, historians of that time, that word in here is talking about somebody who was ill-equipped. Wow. Now, it's not talking about a novice, a young, meaning an age. It's talking about ill-equipped. Because in Hebrew, you got to understand, folks, again, this goes back to Roman mindset versus... Jewish Hebrew mindset. We're not, we're still thinking like a Roman does. We think in few, so it's numbers. In Hebrew thought, that's not always necessarily true. It could be talking about the condition of the person. For instance, the word in Hebrew, katan, means small and puny. But if you take that word and how it's used throughout scripture, in some cases it's talking about somebody who's, again, not prepared or ill-equipped. Because a novice, by thought, is not one who is trained. So what Yeshua is saying now, it makes perfect sense. Let's go back. What did he see? You got to put everything in context, folks. He's looking at the crowd and what's happening. He's having compassion for them because they are what? Sheep without a shepherd. What does the shepherd do? He trains. That's why he said the harvest is plenty, but the problem is that the workers are not trained. Wow. Kind of different, isn't it? It's not talking about that there's not enough. There's plenty of workers. The problem is that none of them have been trained because they have no shepherd. They're going out on their own doing these things. And what's happening? It's returning back void. Because it's not part of holy order. We serve a God order, folks. This is all part of the Mishkan. Look, let me give you some examples in here. And we're going to close out with this. Yeshua is an example of proper biblical order himself. I want to share this with you. In light of what we just read, and going back into the Greek and looking at that word and matching it in the context of how we're speaking, I would say, folks, whenever you're going to get into the Bible, context, context, context is everything, just like real estate, location, location, location. And Bible study is context, context, context. We have to understand the culture of that time. We have to understand the, the, the political agenda that was taken at that place. We need to understand the culture in order to give proper interpretation. Look, Yeshua is an example of proper biblical order. Let's see this. Luke 6, 39 through 40. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit, he said? The problem in the Messianic movement, in the Hebrew roots movement, is that we have a lot of blind people leading blind right now. See, somebody pulls something from an internet, and now I post it online, and we don't even take the time to see who is this person, where they came from, whether he is sent, and where he's getting his information for, and the validity of these things. I know by experience, folks. So now we're running off and we're copying and pasting the message and posting it on Facebook. And we haven't even bothered to check and see who is this person. That's because we're not discerning between the clean and unclean, holy and common. We're not making discernment in our lives, period. Look, a disciple, first of all, 
If you know anything again about the culture, what is a disciple? A Talmudin. What does a Talmudin do? See, a Talmudin is not one who's on his own. See, again, Christian mindset, Jewish mindset. In Jewish mindset, a Talmudin is one who sits under the rabbi, meaning he's under subjection of proper authority. Okay? Proper authority, that's the key. And what is proper authority? Well, we read it through the Torah of Moses. So we have witnesses to what this person say he or she is. So it says in here, a disciple is not above his teacher. The problem is that today we think we're above the teacher. We don't want to submit under anybody. Right? We don't have to submit under anybody because the Holy Spirit teaches us everything. That's so Christian. And it's so cliche. If that's the, if that's the issue, then guess what? From the time of Adam, nobody had to submit to anything. Because God is still God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's still the same thing. What was the point of Moses training the elders then? Think about it. And if we're claiming to be Torah observant, then folks, this has to have a weight in our lives. We can't pick and choose what we want to hear from the Torah. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully what? Trained. Ooh, who said that? Sure. That was my case. When he is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. When? When he is fully trained. The problem today is that we have decided Yeshua died and resurrected, so guess what? We don't need any of that. That, again, Christian mindset. Nothing has changed. The holy order doesn't change, folks. And I'm going to prove that again today. Yeshua is advising the people in here that there has to be submission. There has to be training in order for the disciples. Why did the disciples were under Yeshua? Anybody know why? To commission them at the end so they can go where? To the four corners of the earth and proclaim the gospel, right? Did they all have to proclaim the gospel? Well, we read in the book of Acts. That wasn't always the case. They all had different callings. But they had to train under the rabbi for a period of time to go ahead and be what? Sent out. Holy order, folks. Holy order. Simply put. Matthew 3.13 says, Then Yeshua came from... I'm going to give... This, is, this always has touched me. Then Yeshua came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Why is Yeshua being baptized by a man who, by the way, is sinful? As a matter of fact, the man even said it. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. He's saying, what? You coming to be baptized by me? Why was, you know, again, we don't sit down and we don't, we read through it. We don't stop and meditate and chew on the word. Why was the Messiah, the incorruptible Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, coming to a man? Because remember, Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow who? Messiah. It's called go back to Jewish thought. We have to be an example of who he was. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Yeshua answered him. What was the answer? Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all what? Righteousness. Righteousness, folks. Because that was the proper order. Yeshua was about to be commissioned in here to go and proclaim the gospel. And he went to John, the immerser, Johanan, to fulfill that calling after he fasted. Why did Yeshua need to do that? Yeah. Why? I mean, he's the Messiah. And if he came to teach, hey, you don't have to follow any more order, then guess what? It would have been revealed here. But I'm not seeing that character. I'm seeing 
a very submissive Messiah who understood properly. And because of that, God blessed him and elevated him. As a matter of fact, in the book of Ephesians, it talks about that. Mark 1.42. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean, it says. Right? Now Yeshua is healing people. Part of his commission. And Yeshua sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to who? Why is he sending this man to go show himself to the priests? Because the Torah Moses commands it. Please, don't come to me and tell me that Yeshua didn't follow proper order. Because I'm just going to bomb it. Seriously. It, it's, it's, you've got to be blinder than a bat not to see it. He told the man, go. Now, can I ask you a question? Was the priesthood corrupted at that time? Very corrupted. Did that, in any way, shape, or form, move Yeshua from following holy order? Why would he send them to a bunch of people who are corrupted? Because we do not move from holy order. Our righteousness should not be dependent upon somebody else's wickedness, folks. This is a lesson that we need to learn. We are so moved by what others are doing or are not doing. You know what? I'm going to bless you. I don't care if you're wicked as, as it can be. Because my righteousness is not dependent upon you. My righteousness is because of what my kin did. And I can care less of what you do. That's something that you're going to have to give an account on the day you come before my king. Yeshua followed that principle. He didn't say, well, the priesthood is wicked. Don't go in. Forget that Moses thing. Forget it. Forget that order. Because after all, I'm the Messiah, right? He could have said that. He didn't say that, did he? Acts 15, 1 and 2. How about uh, Paul and the, and the leaders? After the death and resurrection of Yeshua. Now we're talking death and resurrection because a lot of people like to argue, well, this is before he died and resurrected. Okay, let's go after he died and resurrected. Here we go. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moshe, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dispension and debate with it, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles. By the way, that is poor translation. It's talking about the elders. The Sahedrin that they had at that time. Now, can I ask you a question? Paul was a very learned man in Torah. You all know that, right? He was a scholar. Why would Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to find out the answer about what was taking place in there, if holy order didn't matter? Paul could have said, no, I'm, you know, I know the word of God, and I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a corporate decision right now. This is what we're going to do. That's that. No? You know why? Because you always have to have accountability, folks. Amen. I don't care how good you are. You need accountability. I need accountability. Everybody needs, the, the, you know what, the great sages, if you look in the history of the sages, like Hillel, you look at Hillel, Akiva, all these great sages, folks. I'm talking about the foundation, the founding fathers of our faith. They all had accountability. When you look in the Midrash, they were accountable to one another. They, they, they said, okay, this is it. This is my interpretation. Now, I need you to look this over. This is something that we see in the writings. I'm not, this is not Christian. This is Jewish, folks. That's what they were doing. They went up to the Sahedrin, as any, any scholar who had accountability would do. Why? Because Paul was who? Paul was actually commissioned also. He was sent properly. He was already a rabbi, by the way. So, you know, he had that accountability. He had Hillel as his teacher. 
Again, folks, we see that. So it says they appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. See, they didn't take it upon themselves to give the answer. They said, let's go to the righteous, you know, uh, the other people to go ahead and examine. Let's see the other eyes in the spirit so that we can examine this. This has always been that way. It's always been that way, folks. Always. I, I mean, I could sit here and probably tonight going over examples over this, but I won't do that to you. But we're going to end with this. Ephesians chapter 4, 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to what? Equip the saints for what? The work of ministry for what purpose? For the building of the body. It goes back to the Mishkan. How do we raise up the tabernacle of David, the body? Well, we have to have the holy order. We have to have holy order, folks. If there's no holy order, that's the discernment. That's why, that's the difference between being grounded in Torah and not. We have to have that, folks. Otherwise, you're going to be misled left and right. Because what does the book of Revelation say? That even in the latter days, even in the latter days, the elect will be what? Deceived. But it tells you why, though. Read it. I'm not going to tell you. I want you to read it. It tells you why they're going to be deceived. That's, the, that's, always been the, that's always been the problem with the body. We're so sensitive to what we see, and we've got to be careful. It has to be discerned. Again, we're not disqualifying. There's a lot of good people out there, folks. There's a lot of people with talent. There's a lot of people with gifting. I never will suppress anybody's spirit regarding that. But we still have to operate in holy order. That's what I'm saying. We have to operate in holy order. Even if the intentions are good, we have to operate in holy order because we have to have that accountability towards one another. That's part of the body of Yeshua and the Messiah. So I pray that this teaching has become a blessing to you. And today we'll finish up and we're going to finalize with Ezekiel, Ezekiel, and the probing of the tabernacle. So we're going to be discussing today uh, Ezekiel 43, 10 to 27. And uh, again, we're not going to really get into a whole lot of detail because much of this is focused on the offerings which uh, we're going to be discussing and learning more in depth when we get to the book of Vayikra. So I promise you a lot of this stuff will start making sense. But going along the thing that what we've been learning about that Ezekiel is witnessing in here, it is the tabernacle. It's the temple in this case. Not the tabernacle, but rather the temple. And it's the, focus, the, the focal point, folks, from the book of Genesis to all the way to Revelation is that Hashem can have a temple, that you will be that designated dwelling place. So it reveals a lot about us, the cleansing, you know, why we don't eat pork. Again, one of those things. <laughs> Temple of the living God, we want to keep it clean. It goes along the lines, but a lot of things that we ask, why do we do what we do? It's for that reason. So I want to open up by understanding the prophet of exile, and this is out of the claimant's uh, <clears throat> prophet, Navim. They say Ezekiel was a prophet in Babylonia, where he lived for most of his life with his fellow Jews in the land of their exile. He began his prophetic career in 332, slash 429 BCE, six years before the destruction of the temple. Uh, I think it's kind of uh, neat that we know and understand the story of Ezekiel. Because why? Well, he's the prophet prophesying, so I think it behoves that we know a little bit about him. How many of you actually know that most of the prophets were Levites? They were Levites. Almost 99.9%, almost all of them were Levites. And why do I bring that up? What's the importance of that? Because, you know, when we read the Bible, we always read, well, thus says the Lord. You know, if you don't do this, you're going to die. And we hear the prophet saying, thus says the Lord. And we get that fervency in us. Like, wow, 
They're really going out there, coming at the king, you know. Wow, that zealousness, that zeal, that chuspa. But how many of you actually know that they were submitted to authority? Earthly authority, that is. Because they were Levites. They would have been submitted to earthly authority. I'm going to prove it in here. Look. It says in here, The temple in the fifth year of King Zedekiah, the last tragic ruler of Judah. By, the, by then, the fate of all his brethren in Edesi's tribe was virtually sealed because the people refused to heed the warnings of Jeremiah to repent. Now, Jeremiah was definitely from the lineage of the Levites, of the priesthood. It says in here, For 30 years, Jeremiah had warned the leaders. 30 years, folks. You know what's that? 30 years, Jeremiah was warning the people to repent. 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 30 years. I mean, not 30 days. Not even 30 months. 30 years. That's a long time. You really think about it. So it says in here, uh, he had warned the leaders and the citizens of Jerusalem that they would not survive unless they change, but they ignore him. Before Zedekiah became king, Nebuchadnezzar, the overlord of Edis Israel, exiled 10,000 Jews, it says, in the history, to Babylonia. Now, this is where we don't know and because we don't know this, we assume that all these prophets were just self-proclaimed prophets. And they were just listening to voices out in the middle of nowhere and coming in rebuking the king. It didn't work that way, folks. Look what it says in here. They were the cream of Judah, including its Torah elite and its most promising young people. Part of those Torah elites, by the way, when it's talking about the Torah elites, it's talking about Torah scholars. Again, these are people who would have been submitting, who would have had a headship. Okay, you got to go back to the culture of that time. So the ones that actually got in exile, the first 10,000 were actually the cream. That's why they call them the cream of Judah, because they were Torah elite. Among them, guess who it was? Ezekiel. Mordecai, which we read about the story, and Daniel, by the way. These were not self-proclaimed prophets, folks. These were people who were Torah scholars, who had a calling and who were commissioned and sent to fulfill their calling. See, this is the information that when you read the Bible, doesn't share that. So we all assume now that because, you know, they're saying, thus says the Lord, that they're just acting out of their own authority. It didn't work that way. They were very much so submitted to authority, folks. In the Mishlei edition of the prophet says, Ezekiel is brought back to the eastern gate to witness the Shekinah's return. The book of Ezekiel begins with the tragedy of the Shekinah's withdrawal from the temple leaving it as empty in an empty shell, and concludes by reversing the process. Ezekiel was shown the majesty of the rebuilt temple, but the beautiful building that he examined in such loving detail would be devoid of meaning were it not to house the divine presence, he's saying. In other words, he, what, he is what he's actually announcing is that the temple without the presence, the Shekinah glory of God, it's just an empty building. It's just in vanity at the end of the day, folks. And what was the message of the people at that time? Remember we talked about this morning? That whenever there was an existing temple in Israel or a tabernacle, it was an indication that the Lord was pleased with his people. It was, a, it was a, a, an honor to have a temple amongst, the, amongst them, folks. And when they did it, what happened? God would destroy the temple. This is why in 70 AD the temple became destroyed. Why? Because of the wickedness of the people. They didn't deserve to have a sanctuary in their midst, folks. It's very, very interesting because today we look at the sanctuary in a very negative way. But back then, the sanctuary was viewed in a positive way. We want a sanctuary 
amongst each other. In his uh, vision 20 years earlier, a majestic temple had towered over the same mountain on which he was uh, now standing. At the foot of the mountain lay a city teeming with proud and self-sufficient people, secure in their strength, confident in their future. Six years later, the temple was a smoldering, smoldering ruin. The city, a desolate wilderness. Interesting. Their pride and arrogance got to them. They thought that the, the words that the prophet has spoken, which, by the way, they were commissioned by God. You know, by the way, that's how we know that they were actually commissioned by God. Because when it's a self-proclaimed prophet, 9 out of 10 people actually obey. Believe it or not. It's when it's God's true prophet that people don't obey. Because they don't like the message. Now, the self-proclaimed prophet, they'll hear them all day long. But when it comes to accountability and God showing what he wants, people don't want to hear it. Ezekiel knew the secret behind the catastrophe. He had witnessed the agonizing withdrawal of the Shekhinah from its home. He had seen the soul leaving the body. Interesting. That when the Shekhinah left the temple, according to Hazal, it's symbolic to your, your death, your spirit leaving your body. So in a sense, the temple became death instead of life because of their sins. Interesting. So it says in here, before his prophetic eye, the mighty building had become a spiritless mockery of its former grandeur, a meaningless pile, willing fuel for Nebuchadnezzar's eager flames. <laughs> he handed him over, essentially. So what does it say? This is where it picks up in this uh, parasha. This parasha has all to do with the destruction of the temple because of the idolatry and the sin of the people, the lack of reverence, essentially, for, for leadership, everything, order, everything, have essentially been what? Defiled. So due to that, the, you know, the temple was taken away, and now Ezekiel seen a vision of a future time where it would be rebuilt again, folks. I really believe that this is where we play a role into that, because we are playing a role in history, in prophetic history, as far as rebuilding it. So it says, as for you, son of man, describe the house of Israel, the temple. It says. Ezekiel 43 is picking up now with the prophecy of the tabernacle being rebuilt. So there are things in here that we need to understand. Again, it goes back to the rebuilding of the tabernacle. What stage are we in in our lives right now? Rebuilding of the tabernacle. He said, describe the house of Israel, the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. Now, it begs the question, why would the house of Israel be ashamed of iniquities, with their iniquities, what does the temple have to do anything with the iniquities? Because in here, if you notice what he's saying, share with them, basically he's saying in here, the house of Israel, the temple, describe the house of, uh, the house of Israel, the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. So what he's saying is that there's something in the house that's going to expose their iniquities. So what is it about temple service that's going to reveal their iniquities, essentially. Think about it. It's not talking about the Torah. It's not talking about, you know, the Ten Commandments. Because, you know, we can, we can, uh, we can uh, actually uh, come to agreement with that. We can affiliate with that. Okay, the Ten Commandments. You know, honor mother and father, don't steal. Okay, that's, those are our sins. But what does temple service have to do with their iniquities? It's a good question. We're going to find out here. And Hebrew says, Ata ben Adam. It says, 
So it's when he's telling them, let's go back in here. Son of man, describe the house of Israel, the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. It's talking about in here the word haged. Okay. Ataben to them, son of man, re reveal or describe hagen et by the house. So what is about this describing? Let me go back. Describe the house. Is hagen et by Let's look at this word. It's from the Hebrew word naget, which means to tell, to make known, to announce, to declare, to expound, to inform them, to publish, to declare, and to even proclaim something to them. So he's going to make known their iniquities through the temple, essentially. This is why temple is so important, folks, because it's all centered through the temple service. It's all centered... And in, in, in the Mishkan is what God reveals to us, us. Let's put it that way. So, Ezekiel 43, 11 to 12 says, And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, now that he's going to reveal temple service, now that he's going to reveal, by the way, order of the temple, because remember, what's happening in here? Let's put everything in context. Ezekiel has been sharing vision of the rebuilding of the, tabern of the temple. Not the tabernacle, but the temple. Right? So what is he showing them? What is he trying to share with them? In other words, if you want a temple, these are the things that need to take place in order for the temple to be rebuilt. That's why he's saying through the temple, share with them their iniquities. What is it that they have done that has caused the temple to be destroyed? Well, we know through the rest of the Bible that, you know, of course, they committed fornication, they lied, they extorted, all these different things. But I will submit to you also the priesthood and the leadership became the files were. So there was no order. It was disorderly. It was defiled. All put together along with the sins as well. So now it says, and if they are ashamed of what they have done, make known to them the design of the temple. It's conditional, he says. If they are ashamed. You know what Hassan says? That if they're not ashamed, then he was to stop right there and not share it. Because he said, what's the point? of sharing something if they haven't repented. Interesting. So it says, it's design, temple, it's arrangement, it's exit, and it's entrances that it's, it's whole design and make known to them as well as, uh, as, as well as all its statutes and its whole designs and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple, it says. Why is he revealing this to them? Because, you see, the temple service is supposed to be designated for the Levites. Not for the entire nation of Israel. I'm getting this. Kind of talking about the prophetic temple where we will all be priests. Could it be? Possibly. But I think that most importantly for us today is also talking about the function within the priesthood in the rebuilding of the tabernacle as well. You know, can I ask you all something? Can anybody just come to the Holy of Holies? Okay. We need order in the bodies. What is That's just what Ezekiel is trying to say. We need order. Otherwise, he would have been talking about the Ten Commandments. That's it, the tablets. He would have never been bringing up the temple service. He's bringing up the temple service because Ezekiel is witnessing and seeing what has caused the temple to be destroyed. And that was the lack of order. That was the lack, of course, of, of uh, commitment to the Lord. 
their sense of course. I mean, all these things add up together, folks. It's not just one, it's all of it adding up together. But one thing we know for certain, folks, that he's saying that they should know the laws, the statutes, and carry them out. In other words, if you were a Gentile, you were not allowed to walk into certain gates. Did you know that? What would happen? You would get stoned. If you were a Levite, even as a Levite, there were certain, uh, certain areas within the temple that you were not allowed to go in. You guys know that. Even as a Levite. Again, order, folks. This is really the theme. The whole theme of the, rec uh, the uh, building of the tabernacle of David is order. So in Mishlei edition of Prophets says, the form of the temple, because that's what it says, they have to learn the form of temple. This is a general statement that the temple is to consist of various components. A holy of holies, a sanctuary, a hall, other cells and halls. All its laws means the function of each individual room, essentially. That is exactly what we're talking about. How about us as a whole? The function of each individual, what we do within the tabernacle, folks. In other words, if you have not been called to cast out demons, then don't go around trying to cast out demons. Are you getting me? This is what's missing today. If you have not been called for certain giftings, stop trying to fulfill that calling because it may not be yours to fulfill. The hand cannot do the work of the foot and the foot cannot do the hand of the eye and vice versa. And You know, it it's goes back to orderly function. That's why I believe Ezekiel and the prophets of Israel agree with this. This is beyond just the sin because now that the Father is revealing the sin to us and we're all coming to Torah and we're excited about the Torah but we're forgetting one important part. Order. You know, we're so wrapped up with Torah, 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 Torah that we're forgetting that the very foundation of Torah begins with order. <laughs> and knowing the functions. So stop trying to do somebody. If you have not been called to be a teacher, Stop trying to teach people then. Because all you're going to do is confuse them to death and or, they're not, or you're going to just push them away. That's the idea, folks. We all have to work within the function. That's why it says that each and one of them, the laws have the function of each individual room. So if you are a Levite and you are a musician and a part of the choir of the Levites, then there will be certain areas within the room that you will be allowed to be. In other words, if I was standing in the first century temple and I saw a room or I saw an area in the sanctuary and I saw a Levite there, I can call out and say, that is the choir. Not because of the way they dress, because they all were white, because where they were standing. You see? If uh, once a year there was a, a Kohen in the Holy of Holies, I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew that that had to be the high priest. It couldn't be nobody else. Same thing. By the function, we were able to identify who they were, not by color. They weren't color coordinated. Okay, it was by their function that you would know what what work they were doing. So look, First Peter five one through six, and we'll close out with this. So I extort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a. What is interesting that he says that I exhort the who, elders among you as a fellow um, as a fellow what. The elder is exhorting the other elders. You getting what I'm saying? Even the elders are subject to the elders. 
You know that this is scripture that says that the prophets are subject to the prophets? Just saying, food for thought. And a witness of the sufferings of Messiah, as well as the partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, he said. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Kind of like what Yeshua did. He shows how to be an example and how to do these things. And how to, and we cover that a lot in the Torah portion today. When the who, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elder. By the way, a lot of people think that this is just talking about age. That's an error. Now, I'm not saying that it's not just subject, that that's wrong. Yes, yeah, talking about age. But do you know that the younger and the elder is also talking about the spiritual position of the person? As we just read today, that the harvest is plentiful, but what? The workers are few, puny, feeble, young, novice. These are all synonymous words. So we can even read this. You who are younger, be subject to the elder. In other words, you who is coming to the faith and has been in here already six months or you've been in the Hebrew roots one or two, three years, okay, don't think you know it all now. Subject yourself to an elder now. I mean, it, this is, goes back to the principality of knowing temple service order. Clothe yourself, all of you, with what? Well, it takes humility to really submit to anybody. Let's, let's face it. It really does at the end of the day. It, it really takes a sense of humility to say, you know what, I'm just going to put my tail between my legs and you know what, even though i got 50 years of experience, it's okay, I'm just going to put some bit. Because it's a, what is it better, folks, to do what is right or to be right? Do what is right sometimes is better than just be right. Do what is right, not necessarily always trying to be right. So we need to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, folks. I think this is a very loud lesson for every one of us in this room today. I myself included. He opposes the proud. Doesn't like the proud. Wants humility. But gives grace to the who? The humble. Well, the fact that he gives grace to the humble, I'm okay with being humble. Because I'm going to get grace from him. So, 6 then concludes by saying, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may what? exalt you. When? Proper time. The context in here has to do, folks, with elevating you, with, with spiritually elevating you into a position. You're getting how this all connects what we just started? That's why it's talking about when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And it's talking about being submitted to one another. And the conclusion is that we need to be humble. Because as we humble ourselves and we submit to the Heavenly Father and doing what is right, he will exalt us. I believe that part of the problem that we have today, folks, is that we like to take matter too much in our hands. You know, when, uh, when the father told Jeremiah that the children of Israel or the sons of Israel needed to submit to Babylon, they refused to do that. Now, can you blame them? How about if I were to tell you all to submit to your enemy right now? Most of us wouldn't in the battlefield. We'd be like, uh-uh, I'm not going into the lion's mouth. That's suicide. But that's exactly what Hashem was telling them. Submit to Babylon. 
Simply put. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, again, a lot of times it just takes trust and humility, and we need that. They didn't want to submit to Babylon. They fought all the way to the end to not submit to Babylon. And at the end, they die in the famine. Many of them die in the famine because they decided to not go to um, Babylon. And during those years, Israel went through a horrible famine, by the way. Just read the book of Jeremiah. Because they refused to do what God was telling them. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and he will elevate you. Sometimes, folks, by us humbling ourselves and being, and, and again, submitting, even though we may not understand it and we don't see the point of it, that's where God elevates us. We have to have faith in that. Because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with this. You will never make a wrong choice by being obedient to the Word of God. I can tell you that right now. Even if it goes against your natural logic, by the way. Natural logic plays a lot of, unfortunately, plays a lot in our decision making. Our everyday decision making is based on logic. But he is saying, I don't want your decision to always be necessarily in logic, but what is right, essentially. And these are the things that the Father wants to convey to us as we are in the process of the rebuilding of his temple. Amen? Well, the first thing I want to point out, I want to, I want to move a little bit along into the, the Torah, the, the, the British Hadashah reading. Um, Paul says, um, I know what it is to be humbled. I have strength to do all through, all through Messiah who empowers me. It goes on to say in verse 15, And you know too, Philippians, that in the beginning of the good news, when I went out from Macedonia, no assembly shared with me concerning giving and receiving except you only. At the time of, his, of the writing of this uh, epistle to the church of Philippi and the Philippians, Paul was in prison. And he's writing here that this was the only church that he had established of all of the churches that he had established, this was the only one that had shared in the giving and receiving that he did. And they shared with him because they heard about his suffering. And they sent gifts to him to encourage him, to lift him up, and to help fulfill his needs. Our portion starts today in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. It says, And I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now, at last, your concern for me has revived again. So he got word that the Philippians were concerned for him. They were once again concerned. Though you were concerned but had no chance. Not that I speak concerning need, for I have learned to be content in whatever state I am. I first want to take a look at that word need. Because we all think that we know what our needs are. We don't always. Hashem knows our needs. Let's take a look. The word need in, in the Greek is hysteresis. It is need. It is want. It is poverty. It is a falling short, especially uh, that of penury. Anybody know what penury is? I got an English teacher that's not shaking her head that she doesn't know what it is. Penury. I had to look it up too. Webster's 1828 says penury is want of property, indigence, extreme poverty. Penury. Well, I also looked up the, the word indigence because although we, we, we use the word quite regularly and we hear about the indigent, I wanted to know what Webster said. It's, it, a, it is a want or a lack of a state or means of comfortable subsistence. Well, I can understand that. I, 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 I live happily, but am I comfortable in my subsistence? I manage, 
But there are times when it's uncomfortable. I think Richard and his family can definitely attest to the, the lack of comfortable subsistence from when they first moved here, right? <laughs> Our next verse is for, uh, excuse me, let's go back. Um, so we can replace that word need with, with our definitions. It is not that I speak concerning want or extreme poverty or uncomfortable, uncomfortable subsistence. Because he's not speaking of those things. Because he knows that all of his needs have, have always been fulfilled. He says, for I have learned. Notice it says learned. It didn't just happen. It's taught. Okay, As Richard said today, be careful about the things that you pray for. Because... He's going to teach you the things that you ask for. If you ask to learn patience, if you ask for patience, you're going to learn patience. And you're going to learn it through t times of difficulty where your patience is going to be tested to its very thinness. Okay? So he has learned how to be content in whatever state he is in. Do you know what it's like to be content in whatever state you're in? And to have lack of want? I don't think to the extent that Paul had learned it, we have learned it. Because this is the beginning of humility. For, for, uh, 4.12, I know what it is to be humbled. See, he's learned it. He learned how to be content in the state that he was in. And that brought humility to him. And I know what it is to have in excess, because he has had excess. Remember, he was a great rabbi. He was from Rome, from a wealthy family. He had excess. In any and every situation, I have learned both to be filled and to be hungry, both to have in excess and to be in need. Hashem humbled him because Paul was a very arrogant individual when he began when, he, when, when the story of Paul began in our understanding in the book of Acts. Paul needed to be humbled. That word humility, Proverbs 2, 20, uh, 22, 4 says, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Fear of the Lord has to do with humility. So when we are humble, when we fear the Lord, we're going to find the riches and the honor and the life. But we need to fear him first. Because all of those things are only going to come to a true believer when they experience the humility. 1533 says, The fear of Hashem is the discipline of wisdom, and before esteem is humility. Before esteem, not after esteem. Although, you will be humbled if you esteem yourself first. But you won't like it. You'll be humiliated, not just humbled. Luke 14, 8 through 11 says, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. Have you ever gone to a party and sat down in the wrong spot? Sat down in the place of esteem and had someone come over and whisper in your ear, Excuse me, sir, I need you to move. <laughs> It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. Yeshua says, He who invited you and him come to say to you, Give place to this man instead. 
talk about blushing. You're going to turn beet red because you've, you've chosen the wrong spot to sit. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, rather go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, come sit up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Now imagine if you sat at the lowliest place at the table and all of the people around are witnesses to the one who did the inviting and him coming to you and saying, come here, I want you to sit up here instead. I want you to sit in the place of honor. You sat in the best man's spot at the wedding, even though you didn't realize you were going to be the best man. You've been exalted to a place because of your humility, by taking the lowest. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now let's think again about Paul, and what Paul was doing to the believers, the early believers in the way, and how he was persecuting those people. Because he didn't believe his eyes hadn't been, the, the, the scales from his eyes, his eyes were still blinded to Messiah in Torah. And so he needed to be humbled in order to fully understand. And that humbling came on the road to Damascus when he was blinded. And he was blind for three days. That section in Acts chapter 9 from the AENT, the Aramaic to English New Testament, put out by Andrew Gabriel Roth, reads, And our master Yeshua said to him, Arise, go to, the, excuse me, um, let me, let, me, let me give you a little history here. He's actually um, speaking to Ananias here. Paul has already seen the vision. He's speaking, uh, Yeshua is speaking to Ananias in the Spirit. And he's saying, I want you to go to this man because you're gonna, you're gonna, he's going he's gonna to work for me. You're going to heal him uh, in my name and I'm, he's going to work for me. Okay, so, so a little bit of background there. He says, arise and go to the street that is called Straight. Inquire at the house of Yehuda for Shaul, who was from the city of Tarsus. For behold, while he was praying, he saw a man in a vision whose name was Ananias, Kanania, which means Yah is merciful, who entered and placed a hand upon him so that his eyes might be opened. And Kanania says, Master Yeshua, my Master Yeshua, I have heard from many concerning this man how much evil he has inflicted on your set-apart ones in Jerusalem. And behold, even here he has authority from the high priest to arrest all those who call upon your name. Then Master Yahweh, notice it says Yahweh, doesn't say Yeshua, Master Yahweh, said to him, Arise, go, because he is a vessel to me, chosen to carry my name among the Gentiles and among kings and among the sons of Israel. For I will reveal to him how much he will suffer because of my name. I thought it really interesting, and there's a footnote in the AENT here. It says, Aramaic here presents a critical distinction lacking in Greek. Once again, due to the bifurcation, that is the branching, of Marya, which is Master Yahweh, and Maran, or Mari, Yeshua, that is Master Yeshua. Notice that a few lines above, in verse 11, Yeshua gives a command that is questioned. How often do we question Yeshua and the commandments that he gives us? We need to be really careful. It's like speaking to the Son and questioning the Son's authority and having the Father then come and say, you're going to do it because I'm the one that commanded the Son to do so. Yeshua gives a command that is questioned. This act is then, then prompts the speaker to switch from Yeshua to Yahweh, Yehovah, Hashem. Therefore, 
It is Hashem's name that Paul was fearful for, not Yeshua's. Well, that stands to reason since Yeshua didn't come to do his own will, but the will of the Father. Philippians 4.13 says, I have strength to do all through Messiah who empowers me. So Paul has learned how to suffer. He's learned how to be humble. He's learned how to be content in the things that he's done. And he can do it all through Messiah who empowers him. That's the same for the rest of us. Everything that we are going to go through, everything that we do go through on a daily basis, we can stand it, we can have the strength to get through it because Yeshua Messiah will give us the strength to do so. The literal translation from the Greek says, for all things I have strength. That word strength is full health, vigor, ability to prevail, to have force. In the one strengthening, that is to fill with power, make strong, or empower me. The AENT reads a little differently. It says, I find strength for everything in Mashiach who strengthens me. What's to be his name? Because he's going to give us the strength because we believe in the strength that he can provide us. Because we believe in his name. That gets us to our Torah connection. Philippians 4, 17 and 18. Not that I seek the gift, that is the gift that the Philippians were bringing, but I seek the fruit that is multiplying to your account. What is the fruit? That their church is growing. There are more believers coming into the kingdom. That they are winning souls for the kingdom of God. Indeed, I have all and more than enough. He has all and more than enough? You might scratch your head and think, well, how can he have all and... He's in prison. Well, there's only one thing we need. And that is our faith. Faith in Hashem through Mashiach. He says, I have been filled, having received from Epaphroditus, what you sent, a sweet-smelling fragrance, an acceptable offering, well-pleasing to Elohim. Hmm. A sweet-smelling fragrance. What? He sent him something that smelled good? Some perfume? What if, what if, with soap? Yes. So that's all I like that. Homemade soap. What if he's allergic to the fragrance? Not for Kelly. How is it an acceptable offering, well pleasing to Elohim, if it was sent to Paul in prison? Well, let's see. Exodus 29:18 says, "You shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord." Have you smelt roasted meat on the on the barbie on the barbecue grill? It smells delicious. I can only imagine. I've always read this. I'm like, man, I bet, I bet Hashem loves the smell of roasting meat. And I bet he really loves it because, again, in 29 and 25, he says, you shall receive them back from their hands, the, the, the offerings, and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, a sweet aroma before the Lord as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Wow, he really loves burnt offerings. He loves the smell of, ro loves the smell of roasted meat. I do too, honestly. No wonder he told the Israelites when they were in, ex in, uh, in Egypt, don't boil it. I want it roasted. It smells delicious. But guess what? It's not that. So here's the Olah Tamid, the continual burnt offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer it with the grain offering and the drink offering, as in the morning, for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Yeah, he really loves the smell of roasting food on the altar. And he might. We do. I'm sure he, I'm sure he has a, a sense of smell. But I submit to you that's not what he's talking about. I submit to you that he is expecting them to be obedient to him. It is not about the offering. It is about them doing what he's saying do. Now, he's giving them the offering to do. So it is about the offering. 
but is ultimately about their obedience to do that offering. Did I go the wrong way? No. Nope. Uh, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Uh, I think I already read that one. So sweet aroma. The word aroma is the word reyach in Hebrew. It means to smell, to perceive odor, savor, scent, smell. The word sweet is the word nuach, to rest, to settle down, to be quiet. Now I thought this was kind of intriguing because imagine smelling something that settles you. Aromatherapy. Right? Maybe not. But that's, that's the idea that came to mind. Now imagine one of the reasons that we have to do a sin offering is because of the sin in our lives to make atonement for ourselves. And when he smells it, he settles down. Just interesting the way it's worded there. Because, by the way, this is, these are the same, uh, this, this word is from the same root as, as the one that we get from Noah, Noah, right? To rest, that he would bring rest to his people. Just thought it was a little interesting that this sweet aroma was something that would that you would smell that would cause you to rest or bring bring comfort to you. I wanted to share that with you. But again, it's not about the offering itself; it is about obedience. First Samuel fifteen twenty two says, "So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams." He's rebuking. King Saul, because Saul has already performed the sacrifices even though he was told to wait. He was given word by, by Samuel, just wait till I get there and I'll do it. And he didn't want to wait. It's better to obey. It's much better to obey than it is to offer sacrifices. Now, if the sacrifice is, is part of the obedience because he's calling you to sacrifice, then sacrifice. But he doesn't want your sin offering if you're only doing it because you sinned. If your heart isn't in it, he doesn't care for it. He wants your heart. He wants your obedience. James 2.14-17 and verse 26 said, what, do, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The Philippians understood this concept. The Philippians were fulfilling Paul's needs while he was in prison. Need for food, need for clothing, need for cover. Whatever it was, that, that whatever the gift was, the true gift was that they sent him, it, it helped to fulfill his needs in prison. They understood this concept. They understood that by sending these things to him, they were being obedient to the word of God to care for their brethren. That they were displaying their faith. They were doing the good deeds that Torah calls for. Hosea 14, 1 and 2 says, O Israel, return to Hashem your Elohim, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. But take words with you. Return to Hashem. Say to him, Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. The bulls of our lips, in some translations. Well, that's praise. It's us giving him the glory through our trials and our tribulations. And our successes. Right? 
It's not just about we succeed, but when we fail and, and make it through, it's because he rescued us. No, our success is due to him. It is through everything that he gets the glory, the good and the bad. He gets the glory for it all. Galatians 6, 6 and 10 says, Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Because the worker is worthy of his wages, right? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If you sow bad seed, it's like the concept, just the concept of karma. If you sow the bad seed, bad things are going to come back to you. But if you sow good seed, bad things are going to happen. But in the end, you're going to reap the greater reward. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. That corruption is death and decay. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall, re we shall reap if we do not lose heart. If we go back to our portion of Noah, after the flood says that Noah became a man of the earth, of the world. He became a worldly person again. He had gotten weary, gotten tired of waiting. Of course, he lived hundreds of years. So, <laughs> maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's why we don't live that long, because we will grow weary. He doesn't want us to grow weary. Keep your heart, because in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially those who are of the household of the faith. That doesn't say just do good to those who are of the household of the faith. We have to do good to everyone, to all, because that is how we're going to overcome evil. We'll close with this. Matthew 7, 21-23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me, you know what? Let me back up a little bit. I'm, gonna read, I'm, I'm actually going to read part of Matthew chapter 7 because I, I think it's actually poignant talking about what we've been talking about all day today. Enter through the narrow gate because the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many, many who enter in through it. And I want to read that again. I want to make sure everybody understands. Because the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter in through it. This is not an easy way. This way is much more difficult. People like to choose the easy way out. All people like to choose the easy way out. Us included. But when you're given the option, choose the harder. Because the easy way is more likely to lead to destruction. Because the gate is narrow and the way is hard pressed, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. There's a footnote here, that word hard-pressed is that there will be tribulation, there will be difficulty. Brings us back to the idea of the pressing of the oil from the olives. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are savage wolves. By their fruits you shall know them. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Does goodness come from someone who does not preach Torah? Because there's no light in them, as we discussed today. 
So every good tree yields good fruit, but a rotten tree yields wicked fruit. A good tree is unable to yield wicked fruit, a rotten tree to yield good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, by their fruits, you shall know them. Not everyone who says to me, Master, Master, shall enter into the kingdom of the heavens, but he who is doing the desire of my Father in the heavens. And what is the desire of the Father in the heavens? Obedience to his word. Fulfillment of Torah. And not just doing it because it says to do it, though that is good, doing it because you want to please him. Doing it because you have this deep down desire to make your father happy. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Did we not bring people into your kingdom? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You who practice Torahlessness. There is only one way to the Father. And it's not just a belief, not just a simple belief in Yeshua Messiah. It is belief in everything that he did and everything that the Father, that the Father had him do and everything that the Father had given to the people prior to his coming. And that means Torah. That is, those are the good works that we are called to do. Thank you for being a part of our teaching. Be sure to visit our website at www.thefoundationoftheword.org for additional resources and to help us financially. It is our hope and desire that what we teach will help you in your walk with Hashem Elohim, that we bring more souls into His kingdom. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.